Hey, listeners, it's your host, Asia. So in this episode, we welcome back to the program cellist Elisa Weilerstein, and we chat about Rachmaninoff's Sonata in G minor for cello and piano, Opus 19, not to be confused with Chopin's Sonata in G minor for cello and piano, Opus 65, which is on the same CD. Anyway, it's just a little romantic music to kick off your Valentine's week. We hope you enjoy it. If you do, make sure that you subscribe to and rate and review us on iTunes to help us win at Classical Music Podcasting. And don't forget that we have lots of social media for you to follow us on. You can see all kinds of interesting behind-the-scenes things that happen uh, during the recordings of Classical Classroom. And uh, we've got Twitter, we've got Tumblr, we've got YouTube. Choose your poison. Anyway, enjoy this episode. That's it for me. My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the classical classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Elisa Weilerstein. She studied at Columbia University and at the Cleveland Institute of Music. She is a champion of new music. And she's dedicated to expanding the cello repertoire. She's also a bona fide genius, a, that is a MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner. She's played with orchestras and at music festivals all over the world. And on her latest CD, she performs Chopin and Rachmaninoff cello recitals with longtime recital partner, pianist Inan Barnaton. Elisa Weilerstein, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you so much. And what are you going to be teaching me about today? <laughs> You tell me. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm hoping that you'll teach me about Rachmaninoff, who um, yes. I have been told is Rachmaninoff and not, as we say in Texas, Rachmaninoff. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so, so, well, let's get right to it. Who was this guy? When and, and where did he live? <laughs> well, he was a Russian composer, mm-hmm. L- lived in the late 19th and early to mid 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, he's primarily known for his uh, incredible outf- output for the piano. You know, this, uh, you know, things that one can hear in movies are his piano concerti. And uh, he also wrote some fantastic orchestral works, such as the symphonic dances and the, um, the symphonies. I don't know if you've seen the movie Birdman, for example. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, well, when, when Michael Keaton starts flying through the air, the Rachmaninoff Second Symphony comes in, uh, one of the most uh, famous and uh, beautiful sort of uh, tear-jerking moments comes in, and this is just, it's an, it's an amazing, amazing moment. Yeah. And it's a great moment in the movie as well. I mean, the use of music in that movie is just it's just mind-boggling to me, but that's uh, that was that was one moment which I thought we, we should highlight since we're talking about Rachmaninoff today. Yeah. And uh, Rachmaninoff uh, was generally not known for writing chamber music, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly not uh, for, for piano and strings. I mean, one can count probably on one hand the amount of works that he wrote for piano and strings. Mm-hmm. So we cellists feel very lucky that we have this incredible sonata for cello and piano, um, Opus 19, which I recorded with wonderful pianist and very good friend Inon um, Barnaton. Who, who were Rachmaninoff's contemporaries? Who, who else was making music around this time that he may have been sort of influenced by 
Was he part of a movement or anything like that? Well, yeah. I mean, this was early 20th century. So, yeah. I mean, uh, people who followed him or actually were, um, they were slightly younger, but they were alive at the same time were actually Shostakovich and even you know, Prokofiev. But they, they took, you know, they took things, even Stravinsky as well. And of course, they took things in a very different, different direction. Rachmaninoff is very often thought of as a more uh, kind of romantic composer. Mm-hmm. He, he sort of stuck with that romantic language, whereas the others took a very different path, you know, Stravinsky, of course, wrote this groundbreaking Rite of Spring in 1920. Shostakovich, of course, um, really was the—he was born in 1906. Mm-hmm. Now, he was the probably the strongest, most poignant voice of the Soviet Union at that time. But Rachmaninoff stuck with this kind of um, very lush, romantic, and— um, very tonal language, even mm-hmm. though he he lived, uh, um, you know, until the, to, until the mid twentieth century. So the sonata for cello and piano really really reflects that kind of um, that kind of language, yeah. you know. And and when when I say he stuck with the romantic language, I don't say this in any dispar- kind of disparaging way. He he was he he stuck with it. Let, let's say an older language, but um, it was absolutely his own individual stamp on it. Right. There there is no composer really that uh, one can really compare him to. It was absolutely unique and very imaginative and absolutely inspired he's a i mean he's he's a, a truly great composer in every way and, and i think that's indisputable was was he one of the composers who actually left russia or the soviet union yes like, he was yes. okay mm-hmm. so he was mm-hmm. sort of in mm-hmm. diaspora mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what made you want to pair his music with chopin's well it's a piece of, first of all that i absolutely that we both absolutely adore but um you know, Chopin has this in common with Rachmaninoff that he didn't write very much for, for instruments that that were not the piano. Mm-hmm. So I mean, Chopin actually only wrote, I think, three works of chamber music, and he didn't write much of a symphonic output that wasn't actually a piano concerto. So I mean, he was even more sort of specific than huh. Rachmaninoff was. Of course, Rachmaninoff uh, lived a much uh, longer life. Um, he died in you know 1943 and uh, was born, I think, in the 1880s. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, I can't mm-hmm. remember exactly um, the date. But um, Chopin died at the age of 39. Um, right, and one yeah. wonders, you know, um, the Chopin Sonata was the very last work published in Chopin's lifetime, and the cellist that premiered it, the the Sonata was actually the pallbearer at Chopin's funeral. Oh my gosh! So, um, you know, one wonders what he would have done because the the Sonata was an, it's an incredibly successful piece in, in intellectually and compositionally and everything. Mm. Even though Chopin actually uh, struggled writing it but I'm um, you know it's it's indisputably a, a very very successful piece um so you know you, you just wonder what what would have happened if he had had a, had a chance to yeah to fully develop that yeah you know. so so basically you've got music on the CD by two composers mm-hmm. that did not specialize in this instrument right yeah interesting well I'd love to hear some of the music can we um of course can we just start at the beginning of the piece and first yeah. of all um could you introduce the piece by Rachmaninoff yes of course this is the Rachmaninoff uh, Sonata for Cello and Piano in G Minor, Opus 19. Okay. And this is played by myself and Inon Banatan. Okay.
an uh, very, very kind of unusual and very special introduction that just that um, that just happened. Mm-hmm. It kind of sets the tone for the for the sort of general mood of the first movement, mm-hmm. and then of course the the movement then begins to evolve from this point. I mean, it, I, I feel like that, that it truly begins actually where we just where we just stopped. Yeah. Um, that this uh, this beginning is sort of you know it's searching, it's um, pleading mm-hmm. in a way, and then and then the story begins here. I see. Yeah, it's sort of sort of a, a preface. Yes, to the story. Yeah. You know, I've heard I've heard some other music for for cello mm-hmm. and piano. Mm-hmm. Um, how how is Rachmaninoff's different from, say, uh, I think it was the Beethoven that I heard. Um, how, well, how how is his dis- distinctive? Well, I mean, how how can I mean? How long do you have, really? It's as different as I mean. The language, of course, is completely different. Yeah. But actually, Beethoven. It, it's interesting you mention it because I mean, if we're talking about sort of the roles of the, the cello and the piano in the Rachmaninoff, uh, because Beethoven was the first uh, composer to really write a sort of equal um, dialogue between the instruments. I mean, if you look at some of the even the very early Beethoven sonatas, Beethoven wrote five sonatas for cello and piano. Mm-hmm. The first sonata is really. It's almost like uh, it's a piano sonata with cello obbligato. Mm-hmm. The, the second sonata is a little bit less like that. By the by, the time the third sonata comes along, it's truly an equal dialogue. So he really kind oh, of see. set the parameters for what was actually possible. So I'm going and to extrapolate ev- that obbligato means just like obligatory. Oh, uh, oh, obbligato means that it's kind of like um, it, it's it's more important than an accompaniment, but uh, it's sort of like it's it's a it's a secondary role. Right. Okay. You okay. know what I mean? Gotcha. Yeah. So um. So, so, so yeah, this is, it, it wasn't an equal partnership by any means, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, the um, Mozart wrote. He didn't write anything for for cello and piano, but he wrote for uh, violin and piano. But he said, "This is a sonata for piano with a violin accompaniment." Mm-hmm. So, and you know, of course, now we kind of think the other way around. I mean, people sometimes make make the mistake of saying, "Oh, you're playing the Rachmaninoff cello sonata." They say, "No, no, this is a sonata for cello and piano. Um, this is a this is a truly uh-huh. a duo." Um, undertaking and you know any romantic sonata is is pretty much the same. Really, that's 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 a characteristic of romantic music. Yeah, like both both Brahms sonatas, the Frank sonata, the you know a- anything else really. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Neat. Instruments are equal, but they often mm-hmm. they're obviously different. And yes. piano was kind of Rachmaninoff's thing. How how does he treat the two instruments differently? Is one more complex than the other? Is one like can can you tell that the piano is his specialty when you're playing the music? Is it 
How does, how yes. does he navigate yes. that? Yes, so one, one, one can tell. Of course, I mean, the, the way he writes, uh, you, you can find a lot of the sort of similar patterns or uh, similar style in, you know, in some of the piano concerti, for example. Mm-hmm. But what is surprising is how naturally he writes for the cello. Mm-hmm. And so he, um, you know, in the, in the first moment, and this is what we're playing right now, I mean, the, the cello generally takes on a very sort of singing, sort of storyteller role, whereas the, whereas the piano has... You know all of sort of the complex harmonic structures and um, can kind of expand upon this, uh, these things. And um, he gives the piano a little bit more parameter to do that than he gives the cello. I see. Um, it's uh, in the third and fourth movements, though. I think he actually he he allows both instruments to be as free as possible, whereas um, the piano really has the complete freedom. I think in the, in the first movement and, and the see. second as well. Well, yeah. let's hear some of the third mm-hmm. movement. Yeah, third movement is my favorite, actually. Really? Okay. Maybe kind of a personal question, but sure. what's what what story do you think of when you're when you're playing? <laughs> I this don't piece? think of a specific story here. Yeah. Actually, I mean, no, it's the, the music is it's too. I, I think that's very personal for for, for I mean for, for anyone listening to it. I wouldn't want to spoil their own kind of uh, <laughs> imagery. Um, but actually, you know, I don't think of something specific. I mean, it's uh, you know that the music says everything, and and the, and sort of I mean, one reason that I think that what we do is important mm-hmm. is it. Um, it, it transcends uh, the kind of the, the need for, let's say, narrative s- storytelling because it, it it tells a story of its own. Yeah, yeah, and and it allows people too to to sort of superimpose their own sure stories on t- onto it. Sure, you know? that's fair. Absolutely. Yeah. This is your favorite movement. What is it about this movement that that makes it different oh. from the others? Hard to say. It, it's a, it's a very emotional thing for me. This yeah. one actually. Um, his use of harmony and uh, to kind of to, to guide the listener to this uh, you know this place of kind of ecstasy. Yeah, I think is uh, something. And I think in some of his strongest writing, he's 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 able to do that almost as no one else is able to do it. 
you know, that kind of tear-jerking quality, but uh, but yet without being sentimental in any way. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, um, it, it's very characteristic of his own playing of his music, for yeah. example. I mean, you know, it's very easy to kind of indulge Rachmaninoff with extra slides or extra this or that kind of, um, you know, sort of um, superimpose one's own timings on it. But actually, he writes everything that he wants in the score. And if you, re- if you, if you truly follow it um, and are connected emotionally, um, and so that, that way you kind of marry the head and the heart, mm-hmm. um, I think it, it speaks most directly. So, um, and... And this movement, it just, it gives you everything that way, yeah. I think. Yeah. Man, that is just gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you. He just makes no bones about like reaching right into your chest and just pulling on your heartstrings. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Just like yanking. But in in a very direct and honest way, without without um, without being saccharine, and that's uh, that's what's so very special about Rafael. That's his thing. That's Yeah. yeah. Well, in the time that we've got left, I was interested too in talking to you about. Your partnership with with um, Enon Barnaton. Barnaton, yeah. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> sure. Um, how how did how did you meet? I know you, that you've been playing together for a long time. Yeah, uh, we actually met in a very sort of boring and practical way. We have the same manager, uh, Pat Winter, <laughs> um, at Opus Three Artists, and um, you know I've been with her almost nineteen years. And uh-huh. in two thousand eight, I was really uh, desperately looking for um, a recital partner, and. Um, she said, well, you know, you really ought to play with Enon, um, or at least read with him, see what you think. And, and I thought, you know, I love her very much, but I thought, well, what in the world does she know about musical partnerships? Um, but it turned out she she knew a lot, because from the very first note we played together, it was obvious uh, there was a really sort of instantaneous kind of musical connection. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, I mean, he's also one of my one of my best friends now, which is which is great. You know, when, when you're touring, it's nice to have somebody that you like touring with, you know? Yeah. Um, and... Um, it started, I mean, with a really kind of uh, very similar approach to music making, uh, similar sort of priorities and a very uh, deep understanding of each other and also of the music. And um, that allows for tremendous trust and freedom on stage. So that's uh, it's allowed us to kind of really uh, grow together and evolve together. So it's really nice. Yeah, that's what I was I was thinking about that. I mean, and, and you're, a, you're a soloist. You, I mean, you play mm-hmm. with symphonies. and mm-hmm. but But I was wondering... What that's like to have that kind of deep musical relationship with with one other performer, like what does that allow you to do as a performer um, that that you wouldn't be able to do on your own or with a larger group with a with a quartet, for example? How, how well as as I said, I mean it's 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 a it's really about trust and understanding, mm-hmm. and so it's. Um, when we re- when we rehearse, we don't actually talk very much. It's mo- it's mostly about playing. I mean, if something isn't quite working, we might discuss or you know try some different ideas out. But usually, it's a very sort of natural thing. We we do a lot of playing and kind of uh, nonverbal communication, and so on stage, this makes for something. 
it's it's really it's kind of an experience. It'd be, it'd be like having um, dinner with a really really great friend that you have a fantastic kind of <laughs> you know verbal uh, chemistry with, and uh-huh. um, you know you just can talk about anything, and the the conversation just flows. And um, it can if you want to take it in a different direction, you can, and if not, then you don't have to. I mean, it's just there's no pressure. Yeah. It it also I mean it gives me or or him uh, freedom to try something completely different in the concert and to know that the other person's going to catch it yeah. even if you know we haven't discussed it or something nothing has to be really um, planned mm-hmm. which is which is fantastic and that's the I mean that's the best kind of chamber music making I think is there is there a favorite mo- moment that you have on the CD that's oh really I no I don't think so um, between the two I mean between the two of you where where you feel like your music. Where you're uh, really no. Je- no, you got no. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> uh, it, it's very hard to pick one. I mean, um, or I guess I'm, I could phrase that differently. I, I think that every musical partnership has a personality, in the same way that 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 an individual music performer has a personality. Sure. What What would you say your dual personality is like when when you play together? What What is it? Oh, that wow. sort of That's defines difficult. the two of you. I know it's a big question. <laughs> or, or, um, I, I, we can I think, yeah. listen to an example of okay. Of, let's of listen that to an example. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What um, is there a particular spot you'd like to listen to? Let, let, let's start the last movement. Okay, the last movement. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I could hear. I could. You can hear how comfortable the two of you are. Yeah, playing together. There's no building phrases together. Um, sometimes we have unison. Sometimes there's interplay, and, and it's always um, it's always a dialogue. Yeah, there doesn't I think seem it's very open. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of um, separation. Like I've, I've heard no, people playing no, together, where all. where both players are very very gifted clearly but there's no there's sure. not the the same unity that there seems to be in your playing and that was there from the very beginning and i think that that was one reason why we thought okay we, we really need to you know pursue this because that that, that was something that we found a very unusual i mean we, we didn't have to work for that yeah for that kind of unity and um and that was very very special and important Elisa Wallerstein, thank you for coming on and teaching me about this this lush, amazing music. I've thank you really never heard much Rachmaninoff. This was very oh, cool. Oh, okay. Well, you've got to hear some more, right? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right, that about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom. You can follow us on the Twitters, the Tumblers, the YouTubes, uh, and you can swear your allegiance to us by subscribing to us on iTunes and rating and reviewing us. I'd like it if someone would say, it's better than cats. I want to hear it again and again. You can also email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Tight Like a Tiger Holslander for twiddling knobs. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for being artificially created in a lab. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing one million dollar eyes. Thanks to Elisa Weilerstein for being here today. Thanks to me for saying words. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.